Cynic Empowerment. Welcome, everyone. This is Cynic Empowerment. My name is Jimmy Horn. And I'm Tim Carpenter. Welcome, 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 everyone. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a very current issue. Uh, that being the opioid epidemic. I'm sure you all have heard about this in some capacity or another uh, over the past decade or so. Uh, it's really taken uh, quite the uptick. What do we? What could we possibly define this epidemic as? Is is this something like uh, like a disease? Is it something that? Uh, why why is this? Why is it so prevalent? Like what, what's happening here? I don't, I don't know what the, the classical definition is of epidemic, but I'm assuming maybe something along the lines of affecting a large population of people, and it's also bad. <laughs> I feel like there's yeah. never like a happy epidemic. It's not like, and then there was the uh, cotton candy epidemic of 1911. Everyone had cotton candy as far as I can see, so... <laughs> You would walk around and you'd see the men, the women and the children with their teeth rotted out. Yeah. This candied craze. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's got to be bad and it's got to affect a large swath of people, I think, is the most yeah. basic layman's way of doing it, which which the uh, opioid, opioid uh, epidemic definitely has both those things. Absolutely. Uh, to put this in perspective, the opioid epidemic has been a long time coming. Uh, I'm sure all of our viewers are familiar with the fact that opioids are highly addictive uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, let's suffice to say that when you take opioids, you feel good. Uh, it's a it causes this kind of uh, euphoric relief from whatever type of pain you could possibly be experiencing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a necessary treatment uh, for uh, pain in general. And in the modern day, a lot of uh, medical circles are going to regard it as being one of the most important medicines known to modern man. Uh, when we're talking about opioids in general, granted, those can be broken up into several different subcategories, uh, but you can usually say that the, the op opioids – so I guess it's, it's easiest to say that you're going to start with the thing that it's derived from, the opium poppy, right? It, and from that right. – Unless you have a synthetic one, which are also Unless prevalent. You have a synthetic one, absolutely. And we'll, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the so from the opium poppy, you can derive two alkaloids, two naturally occurring substances. Uh, you can either have codeine or morphine. Uh, now, codeine is still used in the modern day, and it, in fact, is the most commonly used uh, opioid-related alkaloid uh, used to used as an analgesic. Uh, and morphine, on the other hand, is going to be the, the the stronger brother of the two, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to be uh, where we're ultimately going to, uh, you know, branch out into uh, the heroin, um, you know, things that are more readily associated uh, with opioids and the epidemic in general. Right. Uh, so taking it back. Uh, we can see the opioid epidemic, at least in the in the United States, beginning uh, a couple hundred years ago. Uh, in the mid to late 1800s, uh, you see uh, morphine or, or opioids in general being used to treat uh, people experiencing pain within the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit prior, or a little bit after that. Uh, in 1897, Felix Hoffman synthesizes heroin for Bayer, which I actually didn't know prior to this. Bayer was a German company. Um, oh. <laughs> did, did you know that? Uh, I mean, it's a German name. I only know that because I, I uh, took German, so I knew that part. But I'm just, it's the, not to take away from your saying, when I heard uh, made heroin for Bayer, I was imagining like just like someone like, oh, God, these bears are experiencing pain. <laughs> we need to inject these ton beasts with heroin to yeah. make sure these bears don't feel any pain. But now I, I get what you're saying. Well, if they're big and cute and cuddly as long as you're <laughs> behind a heavy pane of glass or bars or something right. to that extent. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so Felix Hoffman's the guy responsible, right? <laughs> Let's <Right>. play him. <laughs> no. uh, so he synthesizes heroin for Bayer in 1897. Uh, and a little bit after that, uh, there's this, uh, this this big event in history in the early 1900s. You know what that is, Jimmy? <laughs> early 19? Is it World War One? It's World War One. That's right. Uh, and uh, following World War One, you have the Treaty of Versailles, which actually uh, allows uh, well, it it reduces the um, the power of the trademark that Bayer had over. Uh, it's opioid production and heroin in particular. Okay. So allows American companies to produce it after that point. Oh, um, they're like, hey, you know what, you dirty, filthy Germans. You don't yep. get to get rich off these opioids anymore. We won. We get to get rich off them now. That's right. But I mean, it, it does make sense. We don't believe in your intellectual trademark. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, it's an entirely different episode, right? <laughs> Good luck paying your war reparations without your heroin money, you, you oh, dirty geez. krauts. Yeah, get them, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, so we, we get access to those trademarks. We're, we're allowed to, to make those in the United States, uh, and thus... Uh, Heroin is is produced on a larger scale. Flowing the uh, streets. Well, initially it was marketed as a, a cough suppressant. Oh, that's good. So you know you got a little you know <coughs> you know like, hey why don't you head over to your local uh, drugstore and pick up some heroin <laughs> get rid of that cough. <laughs> like I don't I don't want to live in the America where like all the surgeons were just doing cocaine and sewing random body parts together and the soda shop like fountain had heroin in it but at the yeah. same time I kind of want to experience it. Mhm. Yeah, like, just kind of go swimming in that. Yeah, like not that I want to be have all these illicit substances in my system and like die but like i just want to see what america looks like when that's just like everywhere right like what it like how how does society function i just i don't know i well, apparently really well i mean that's the roaring 20s right yeah but then it crashed so obviously everyone was like <laughs> high on their i don't know cocaine abuse heroin abuse lives that i guess it you know every, everyone's spending like crazy because no one gives a shit because people are only living for the now and then the market crashes so i don't fucking know the body has its limits like you can only have too much you can only have so much of a good thing yeah i guess and then you just your, your body breaks down the, the, the body the, breaks down and then the economy breaks down yeah it's all late man oh <laughs> uh, it's fucking nuts okay sorry not to the side girl Oh no, that's that that's that's the background. We've we've set the stage for okay. where some of these drugs came from. Uh, now, in terms of the actual epidemic, or, or you know what what is considered to to be what what we're currently operating in, uh, the opioid epidemic began in what the late 1990s. Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of people that are studying this stuff now will agree that uh, the epidemic uh, wouldn't be in full swing the way it is now if it wasn't for uh, a company uh, called Por Purdue Pharma. So Purdue Pharma is the company uh, that uh, created OxyContin and that went on to the market in 1996. I believe in the FDA approved it in 1995, 1994. And it was uh, supposed to be a long-term painkiller and so, and the, the, while well, the same time that that was happening, there's this group uh, known as the American Pain Society that mm. their whole push was putting uh, pain as the fifth vital sign for for patients uh, receiving care in a hospital setting. So the, the American Pain Group, you said? Uh, American Pain Society. Oh, the American. It, it kind of sounds like a professional wrestling team. Uh, we're the American Pain Society. <laughs> we're, we're going to bring a house of pain on you. Yeah. No, that, yeah. The turnbuckle. Yeah. That's true. No, that'd be amazing. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you're good. So the four vital signs uh, that were recognized before pain got 
accepted as a, a fifth vital sign in the early 2000s was blood p- pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, and temperature. And so yeah. once pain became uh, the fifth vital measures. sign... Objective measures, yes. Things you can measure, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, pain itself is uh, subjective, right? Yeah, you can't feel it differently. You can't objectively measure pain. It's Are you in pain or are you not in pain? Uh, absolutely, all the time. Right. Oh, here you go. Here's some opiates. Here, yeah. Um, and and so what would happen is these healthcare professionals went before all they had to do is you know check the four vital signs of blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, and temperature. Uh, once uh, pain became the fifth vital sign, every time they went to check these vitals in the patient, they also had to ask them if they were in pain. And if they were they were in pain, uh, they would have to give them some kind of medication to relieve it. And hospital settings, they uh, would, you know, rate their nurses on how well they were checking people's vitals. Uh, So once you add pain as a vital, you're essentially being reviewed based on how you're treating your patient's pain, right? Yes. And so if you gave your patient, I don't know, some super powerful opioid to treat their pain when he came back and asked them if their pain was treated so you could write it down on your little form to say whether or not you're doing your job right your patient's gonna be like i feel good dude yeah they're fucking passed out in the chair because you gave them so much it's like well i'll take that as a yes (laughs) yeah i'm gonna mark that down on my little chart here and say that i'm doing a great job and Mm. looks happy to me and but so we have to you know then ask ourselves why were these hospitals and healthcare providers providing opioids so readily? Because prior to the 1990s, healthcare professionals were wary of prescribing opioids, and it was fairly rare. It, it did happen, but it mm-hmm. it wasn't done very readily. And OxyContin had a very, or I should say, that Purdue Pharma had a very aggressive uh, marketing of OxyContin. Uh, much like when we talked about in our episode for uh, for private colleges had a very <laughs> aggressive uh, marketing campaign for the ITT Tech Institute. Mm-hmm. So in 1998, Purdue Pharma had this promotional video called I Got My Life Back. And I watched it. And knowing everything I know now, it's disgusting. You have in this video all of these doctors... Basically saying like, oh, yeah, so you may think that opioids are dangerous and that it's super addictive. But in our our private little study, we found that if you're actually someone that's experiencing chronic pain and you take these opioids, you have a very, very low risk, very low, extremely low, so low you can't even imagine it, risk of getting addicted to these opioids. And apparently... That sounds believable. <laughs> it sounds believable. It's like, oh, okay, so if I really need this drug and I take it, I'll be fine. And this uh, video would be playing in doctor o- doctor's offices, right? So if you're some patient that's experiencing pain and you watch this video, you'd be like, oh, well, I want Oxycontin. That'll be good. Isn't that like – shouldn't that be one of the big red flags? As soon as you hear somebody say something like, this is absolutely not addictive, the first thing I'm going to think is – why would they tell me it's not addictive? Right. I didn't even I didn't even know it was addictive in the first place, but yeah. now you're telling me it's not. I guess I'm <laughs> double yeah. disarmed. I don't know. It's precisely. It's like uh, the modern day like uh, fresh food and and local foods industry. Like mm-hmm. a lot of these things that I see on labeling nowadays, I didn't even know it was possible. Like uh, you know, this chicken was not raped at some point in its its youth. And it's like, wait, are what? other chickens just getting like raped or something? Right. Like what's What's going on yeah. here? Right. I had no idea. This chicken is all natural. What's an unnatural chicken look like? Yeah, what does that look like? <laughs> Where do those come from? It's got like eight legs. It's just like rolling around. Gosh. Exactly. So that's a, a big reason to be nervous. The fact that they are pushing so hard that it's not addictive. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And so it's just like very white collar business. So they would have Purdue Pharma would send sales representatives to doctor's offices to tell them that there was very low risk. Um, it would make like these claims because Oxycontin is a, a long form release morphine uh, releaser, the, the pill form in your body. Like, oh, since it's a long form release, it's going to be less dangerous for your pa- patients instead of a short term release. Where in all actuality, the fact that it was a long form release allowed uh, people that were abusing the pill 
to abuse it better. It allowed them to make it into an extravenous form where they could inject it or snort it. Uh, if it was a short form release, it wouldn't have been ineffective to abuse. So it's like this double talk where basically everything they say, it, the opposite is true. When they say it's not uh, habit forming or addictive, it means it is. When they tell you it's hard to abuse, it means it's actually very easy to abuse. Probably, yeah. And so, and also, as you know, with the the uh, health field, there's like this long term uh, learning aspect where there's always like continued uh, learning where you have to go to seminars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Purdue family would always make sure to be present at any of these venues to make sure they could spread their their word of the. Uh, safeness of their their drug and how good it was at treating pain. Huh. So basically, this, this, this basically went on through the early 2000s. Is there a, there's like an, an idiom, uh, having a dog in the fight? Have you heard that before? I have, but I, what do you mean in this sense? <laughs> I, I feel like uh, you should be nervous about anything Purdue says because there's money to be made off of the, the potential of their drug to be sold yeah. and or distributed uh, you know, through these lines. So why would you believe anything that they have to say if there's that incentive of monetary gain? <laughs> well, like, it's just bullshit. Like, yeah. don't, don't take them as an authority because obviously they're a for-profit business. They're, they're trying to sell you something. It's the same reason yeah. why you don't trust the guy that's like coming to your door and trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner slash religion, you know? Yeah, no, it, it's true. And it's even more disgusting because uh, Purdue Pharma themselves knew their drug was highly addictive uh, one, because they eventually got taken to court in the uh, early mid 2000s. And yep. there are so many things they knew about their drug being abused and otherwise, but this abuse is what made it profitable. It, it the, the the addiction created a demand because like I'm trying yeah. to like if you if your drug doesn't get you high, like there's not a demand outside of it. Like people aren't going to be, you know, taking nasal spray for fun if it doesn't have a euphoric. <laughs> Uh, yeah. connection to it. People aren't going to be breaking into pharmacies, stealing all their nasal sprays, and then selling it on the streets, right? So uh, when you have a drug like Oxycontin, that this does happen, uh, uh, office, uh, uh, health offices are regularly raided by drug fiends so they can get their hands on these opiates that yeah. sell for $35 a pill. Uh, there's a huge demand. <laughs> well, but it's 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 pretty complicated because I don't think that Purdue is uh, producing these substances with the thought that there are going to be people who are going to be recreationally using them and finding ways in order to open those lines of commerce, you know, directly to them, uh, because it it has to go through a doctor. You know, like these are scheduled substances, so it it goes through some type of doctor. The doctor then prescribes it to someone, and that person who it's ultimately prescribed to has the ability to be able to distribute it. Uh, or I don't know. Maybe it goes farther up the chain. Maybe the doctor is distributing it in in a in a roundabout way. It, it, that's exactly it. The, 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 these doctors are prescribing it in a roundabout way, in the sense that since there's such a large demand, like nowadays there are uh, procedures in place. To prevent over over prescription, but in the late 80s, early 2000s, you could you know set up five doctor's appointments in a day, go to each of those okay. doctors, and then get complain about your back hurting to each one of them, and each of them prescribe you medicine. Where nowadays these drugs are heavily uh, watched. And doctor, healthcare professionals can look in their system and say, oh, my, my computer is showing me that you were prescribed this yesterday and that you picked it up at a CVS. Like, I'm not going to give you any more. But before that, you know, uh, they could hop around, get their pills from all these different places and then f flip it on the street and sell it for a thousand times its original asking price. So in a roundabout way... <laughs> Uh, Purdue Pharma was facilitating um, this this drug <laughs> getting on the streets, and you know they're not making the exuberant uh, price of the street value of it, but they're still making money hand over fist by having all these doctors' offices sell it for them.
Yeah, they're they're, they're the dealers. Yeah. Right. So you, you go into the doctor's office, you sit down. It's been like the third time you've been there. Like, oh, hey, Jimmy. You know, yep. <laughs> how's it going? Welcome back. Uh, looks like uh, you're still in pain. Uh, so I'm going to prescribe you a thousand milligrams of smack or dimorphine yeah. and uh, send you on your way, you know, just uh, take care and I'll see you in 10 minutes. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, because I think there was a, a case, there was a town in uh, West Virginia where these drugs are being overprescribed. And when you looked at the numbers, like the number of pills that were prescribed each woman, child, and uh, male or man in the town w- was prescribed the equivalent of 434 pills. So obviously, it wasn't people in the town receiving the medication. People were going to this town specifically because they knew they could get opioids e- easily. Because <laughs> it, yeah. it's difficult because the the addictive or not the addictive the the um, the incentivization to acquire this particular thing is twofold or multiple fold. I mean, like one, it's, it's readily available. Like you have these doctors that are willing to dish out massive amounts mm-hmm. and you have the lines to, and the lines of communication to be able to determine where exactly you can get them. The, the drugs are cheap, uh, which I think if you, if you look at, uh, how much heroin is in particular, yeah. uh, a lot of, uh, you know, if you do a quick Google search, you can find, you know, heroin is like, five to fifteen dollars a bag whatever a bag is do you, do you have any like gram amounts like you... i don't i fortunately am not literate in heroin and knowing it's it's cheap as fuck like I, a lot of sources were telling me that uh in most states heroin is cheaper like like uh, um the amount of heroin that it takes to get you high is cheaper than a pack of cigarettes uh wow. so that's really, really cheap. So that's that's another way. Like it's it's cheap fun, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, someone who is going to be using it uh, to, uh, um, I guess, qualify to be on this this watch list, this uh, part of the epidemic, mm-hmm. uh, is going to be spending anywhere between one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars a day, uh, because uh, heroin or or fentanyl or uh, many of these other synthetic opioids that are. Uh, now being cut into like heroin or what have you right. are of increasing power. Right. So people are always going to try to be, you know, like chasing the dragon. You know, they, there's uh, there's this ever increasing desire to break through your tolerance mm-hmm. and find that euphoric, uh, you know, that euphoric state that you started out with. Yeah, because from what I understand, uh, after the first time you take heroin, nothing's ever going to be as good as the first time. But yeah. these heroin junkies, like that's what they're trying to recreate. Well, they might be trying to recreate it, but at a certain point, you get the dope sickness, right? Mm-hmm. And you you can't. It, it's no longer it's no longer a chase for the good. It's an avoidance of the bad. Yeah. Because you know you have that those the physical withdrawal mm-hmm. that is going to cause you to have this myriad of of terrible terrible side effects. Right. And some people describe it. I mean, like if you if you just go on YouTube real quick and you look up, you know, uh, the the personal experiences of some people that have been addicted to opioids, mm-hmm. they say it's some of the worst sickness they've ever felt in their life. And I don't I don't doubt that. Uh, I'm sure it's absolutely terrible because it's it's become something that is a part of you. Yeah. You know, the the, the drug is necessary to to live. Now I, I don't know. I, I haven't actually heard of people dying from withdrawal, but I'm sure it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's let me make clear about that. No, I'm I'm I, I feel like I've heard that before. You can die from withdrawal from uh, from heroin, so you can't cold turkey it. Um, we we should uh, talk a little bit later about uh, methods to wean people off. I, I think that uh, or we could talk about it now. Let's talk a little bit more why Purdue Pharma sucks. <laughs> okay. Then let's yeah. talk about weaning people off. By 2005, it was basically widely known and acknowledged that uh, Purdue Pharma, due to their aggressive marketing techniques for their drug OxyContin, were creating a negative ripple effect in the healthcare community of people getting addicted to this drug. Uh, at this point, uh, it was accepted that 
out of 550 patients that started opioid therapy, one out of those 550 would die within 2.6 years from their opioid prescription. So very, very Twice bad. Just, yeah, that's, that's really terrible. Yeah. And so... It's kind of like selling cars, right? Like... <laughs> Selling cars? You want well, you, you want repeat customers in car sales too, right? Uh, yeah. But every time you sell somebody a car, if you know that they're gonna you know drive above the speed limit, they're gonna drive recklessly, and then they're gonna crash it, you know, it's that's like one out of five hundred and fifty people that are never gonna come and buy a car again. That's true. They're 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 killing their their yeah. patients. Uh, Gotta think about the long term here, right? <laughs> Not thinking this all the way through, Purdue. <laughs> right. You want to keep your patients alive. That way they can come back. Idiots. Freaking idiots. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically they, they the uh, FDA brought them to court because they were like, they were going to try to send a message to these big, uh, to this big drug company, which would, you know, have a, send a message to all the other drug companies. That way they would never do this ever again. And so they charged three men... <laughs> At the top of the uh, company, three executives, uh, for a combined $634 million uh, with misdemeanor charges. So they also had to do like some kind of public service afterwards, right? These are so, and, and at, so thousands of what, people what do you have think their died. public service looks like? I don't know. They probably donated money or some bullshit. I doubt they were on the side of the road picking up trash. They're probably, yeah. I, I have no idea. One of them, like, inadvertently gets uh, poked with a needle or something wouldn't that be just, oh sweet sweet karma what, what kind of needle uh one that had been filled with some type of opioid preferably preferably fentanyl that way they overdose and die uh <laughs> just a couple of grams in there and then dead well That's how it is. uh if you look at the the uh revenue of a company like purdue pharma they make three billion dollars a year and so charging these men <laughs> With $634 million, I'm sure Purdue Pharma covered most of the charges, right? These are like they're the, the people that have been making them all this sweet, sweet money with their aggressive marketing techniques. And that's that's why they were charged with misdemeanors, is that they basically saying they misled the public by saying that these drugs were safe when they weren't safe. But, you know, just a little slap on the wrist. And obviously nothing has changed uh, since they're, they're still making shit tons of money. And what's even more ridiculous is now Purdue Pharma is trying to sell the public on a a, a uh, opioid addiction uh, drug to try to help people treat their opioid addictions called uh, buprenorphine. And yeah, and so they're like, hey, we got you all addicted to our uh, opioids. How about you take our mild opioid? buprenorphine to try to get you off of it and so now they're probably going to make money hand over fist getting people (laughs) unaddicted to the drugs anyways purdue pharma is trash they're awful uh and one of the major reasons why we're here yeah it's that's ridiculous it's that's like some some classic john d rockefeller kind of stuff you know you just got to corner the market uh so if you can get people addicted but also fix the well Fix the addiction. Yeah. <laughs> You're not fixing the addiction by by offering, um, uh, you know, some type of opioid maintenance therapy. Yep. Or what you call it? Uh, apparently, um, what, what what did you call that? Was it bu- bu- buprenorphine? Buprenorphine, yeah. Buprenorphine. Uh, apparently, that doesn't have some of the uh, some of the chemicals in it that cause the euphoric sensations okay. that are associated with opioids. So I guess the idea there is to give them lower and lower dosages over time in order to wean them off of opioid addiction or, I don't know, get, get them back into the swing of things that uh, so, so that they can be functioning members of society and they can go sit at desks and do data entry and stuff <laughs> like that. You can't have people going off and just doing their own thing, so – Right. You know, let's let's get him back to the workforce because that's what a, a functioning member of society does. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, so I guess um, yeah, opioid replacement therapy mm-hmm. uh, is one of the premier ways in which we can combat this, and right. uh, through the use of uh, drugs like buprenorphine or uh, naloxone, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, methadone has been one of the one of the more premier ways that has been used since the uh, since the 90s. Yeah. Uh, when opioid epidemic uh, numbers started to creep up there. Uh, a lot of the Nordic countries have already been experimenting with methadone clinics uh, and have had some success. Uh, but I think one could argue that there's there's kind of a, a good and a bad with these types of uh distribution programs okay well, distribution programs uh on one hand uh you have uh, an authority that is able to administer the drug under the watchful eye of professional guidance right uh which is sure can be good mm-hmm. as long as those people don't have the same mentalities like purdue pharmacy uh, and aren't acting as some type of authority that is trying to make money off of these individuals because in that sense, it's literally the exact same thing in a slightly different context. And it's like, oh, well, we're trying to help them. So acting as the good guys, once again, you are you know, trickling these drugs into these people's body mm-hmm. with no real end in sight. You can try to administer – because you're still administering the drug to them, right? Like there's – I think in some of these instances, you don't ever wean them off entirely. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast not that long ago where there was an individual who was like a hardcore heroin junkie that couldn't get his life straight. But now I I believe he's um, prescribed methadone. And from what I understand, basically it hits the receptors in the brain uh, that the opioid receptors in a way to where if like if he took methadone and he tried to go and shoot up, like there wouldn't be like a euphoric effect from that because his receptors are already full. And so as of now, it looks like this individual is going to be taking methadone for the rest of their life, for better or worse. But now they can, you know, as we said earlier, be air quotes, functioning member of society. You know, he has a steady job. He hasn't, you know, done heroin for a while. Uh, But at the same time, he's obviously still addicted to opioids since he has to take this methadone, which is a mild opioid to be a function member. So, I mean, I think it's kind of like a catch-22 of, like, after you open Pandora's box, there's always going to be that risk of relapsing and going back to being a heroin junkie, unfortunately. Um, And so, I mean, in the case of uh, buprenorphine, I I would agree with you of, like, wow, (laughs) this fucking evil pharmaceutical company that sold us on opioids and is the reason why we're in an opiate crisis is literally going to make money hand over fist trying to treat the crisis they created. Total bullshit. Like, I think every dime they fucking make off of buprenorphine should go to treating families and and compensating uh, families for, like, losing loved ones from opioids. I think that would be a just society. Is that going to happen? No. Okay, let's uh let's let's take the devil's advocate approach here for a second then. No. Is is fentanyl or a lot of these synthetically uh or these these synthetic opioids are they bad? Like Fent- w- without any type of recourse? Uh fentanyl's very bad. Well, but it's just a, it's a stronger form, it, right? Right. But a lot of the uh the overdoses we're seeing now are because of fentanyl because it's crazy cheap like you can buy fentanyl online from china and they'll sell it to you and tell you it's like printer ink uh but you know what you're getting but that'll say on your package and uh so like two milligrams of the stuff will kill you so fentanyl that's what i make sure all the listeners understand is very different from oxycontin and buprenorphine and methadone these are opioids that are made in china that mm-hmm. are shipped over here. Like, uh, I mean, there are, I think fentanyl, it may be used uh, in late stage cancer patients because it's very powerful to try to ease pain. This is this is basically people, a drug that people in hospice should be taking. People that are in like the last six months of their life that nothing can like make them feel good. Like that's like the only time you should be taking something as insane as fentanyl. Right. The only time you ought to be taking it. But but there are a lot of, there are a lot of oughts in in the world that people don't necessarily follow. Yeah. So in this particular instance, because something is cheap, that makes it more readily available. And in in my capitalist definition of yeah. cheapness, cheapness is good, right? Cheapness gives people the ability to buy in higher quantities right. uh, or 
you know, make it more readily accessible to a larger quantity of people. Right. It's it's good. It's good for the drug dealer that's cutting his heroin with fentanyl and being able to sell it for less. Because, like, well, just to get an idea of how cheap it is, you can get, like, for, like, $361, the amount of fentanyl you could buy would be equivalent to 10,000 overdoses. Like, yeah. 10,000 lethal <laughs> doses for $361. When you put it like that, uh, I mean, that's, that's definitely kind of, like... That's information that is produced in a somewhat biased way, right? Because if you if you instead frame that as, uh, you know, that amount of uh, fentanyl is going to be equivalent to this many hospice care patients that uh, are alleviated from their end of life pain, you know, it's it's definitely okay. kind of let me frame it a different way. Slant. Now that North Carolina is using fentanyl to kill their inmates because it's way cheaper, I've just described yep. how cheap it is compared to the original uh, lethal injection drugs that, that they were using, North Carolina can now kill 10,000 inmates for $361. Is that a better slant? Uh, it still sounds pretty bad. <laughs> uh, gosh, but hey, uh, if, if you... Uh, for our listeners out there, if you would like to uh, track back a couple of episodes, did one over corporal punishment not too long ago with a focus on capital punishment, and we talked about uh, some really nasty ways to die. So in this particular instance, death by fentanyl might not be as bad as some of those other ones that we discussed in that episode. Yeah, that's true. I think it, when we had our discussion of like which one would you take based on the accounts of heroin addicts, I guess I'd go with the fentanyl. I think going out mm. with fentanyl probably be pretty okay. Yeah. Or, or like uh, if you backtrack to one of our, our very recent episodes, uh, industrial disasters, death by molasses. You know, yeah. at least you get oh, a little, little sweet, little sweet dessert right before you drown in sticky goodness. God damn it! Jeez. Uh, anyways, back to the topic. Back to the topic. Uh, so, so another thing. So we, you know, uh, what's interesting is I was uh, reading about. Uh, how good actually is or are opioids in treating pain? And according to some recent studies, maybe not as good as we think. Uh, people may just be associating the euphoria they get from these drugs as better tr pain treatments. But in yep. a recent study uh, where people were using or uh, they were using uh, NSAID uh, painkillers as opposed yeah, to opioids. Yeah, and mm -hmm. NSAIDs, and that stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So that's going to be like your aspirins and your Tylenols and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, yep. Essentially, when they, they took one group of people, gave them opioids to treat their pain, took another group, gave them the NSAIDs uh, mm -hmm. to treat their pain. And when they did like a scale of like, rate your pain from 1 to 10, the NSAIDs actually treated the pain uh, similarly, if not better. Like it was like a 0.5 degree better for the NSAIDs as far as like how much pain the individuals felt. So when you consider how dangerous these opioids are, uh, you could say like, well, maybe there's way better treating pain. Maybe it's it's uh, worth the risk. But then when you look at the study, it's like, maybe not. There's a there's an inherent problem with self-report. And in this particular study, uh, I see one group of people uh, who are being given uh, these NSAIDs. Mm -hmm. Uh, that still have some type of uh, cognizant thought about what they're feeling and what they're doing, while the other group is given this mind-altering substance, possibly one of the things that is going to make them feel better than they ever have in their life before. And the only, you know, that there's a possibility that they're going to be given more yeah. if they say that they're in their pain. pain's not being treated. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh no, I'm still hurting. Yeah, it's like, oh man, this pain hurts. Uh, yeah, uh, I need more. You're smiling. <laughs> yeah, it hurts so good. <laughs> oh, it hurt. It hurts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're like, you know, no one's going to break into a, a Walgreens and steal all their ibuprofen to get high off it because that's just not how they work. Yeah. You know, you know it's, there's no, you know, happy fun time there. That's a good point that you bring up there because like opioids, they, they have uh, a different way of treating that pain. And maybe it is that euphoria right. that's – it's acting as such a uh, fantastic distraction mm -hmm. from whatever pain you could be experiencing that you forget about the pain altogether. That's true. Uh, for our listeners that may not understand how opioids uh, treat pain, Tim and I aren't experts. But essentially it's a, it's a neurological fix. 
The opioids go into your brain. They say, hey, you don't hurt as bad as you think you do. And you go, <laughs> okay. Where the NSAIDs, they're going to decrease the inflammation of wherever you're experiencing the pain and reduce that inflammation that's going to be causing you the pain in the first place. To, so the yeah. it goes more to the, uh, the source, not so much to the brain. Well, we have certain receptors in our brain as well. Uh, opioid receptors, it's a naturally occurring substance, or, or at least you know a couple of the alkaloids are. Mm -hmm. uh, so it actually works very strongly with our, you know, our biological state. Uh, you know, in in a, in uh, opposition to things like NSAIDs, uh, which are going to act in a completely different and probably not nearly as efficient way. Yeah. I guess this might be a way to put it. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good point. So, so now that we've established that opioids aren't as great as we think they are, and uh, the reasons why we're in this crisis, let's talk about some of the numbers and uh, the negative consequences America is currently going through because of this epidemic. So just to give an example of a statistic uh, I have here from the Washington Post, in 2016, there were more than 63,000 drug overdoses in the United States. More than 66% of them were attributed to opioids. And this is according to most recent data from the Centers uh, for Disease Control and Prevention. CDC! So... So cool. overdoses are bad. There's lots of them in the United States. But according to this study, 66% of them were due to opioids. Just to paint a picture of how deadly and dangerous these drugs are. Ugh, ridiculous. Well, yeah, to, to throw some more numbers at you guys. Yeah, numbers. Um, let's see. Uh, as of 2015, it's estimated that 16 million people worldwide have been affected at one point in their lives with opioid use disorder. Let's see. Uh, resulted in 122,000 deaths worldwide in 2015. Mm, let's see. Uh, I, I believe as of late, like as in the last couple of years, yeah. uh, drug overdose and in particular opioid overdose, well, I think it yeah, I think it would be more accurate to say drug overdose in general if you're lumping them together, actually now outweighs car accidents as being a cause of death. Yay. So it's, it's about 13,000 over in, in, in the United States. Um, you know what? That – you know, if you think about it, that's a good thing, right? Because we at least want our cars to be more safe than our drugs, right? Is that is that yeah. a good way to look at it? Is that a silver lining? But you also have to keep in mind that your car is like a 3,000-pound, you know, quickly moving thing that operates off of explosive dinosaur blood. You know, that's <laughs> – uh, it's just – it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh Yeah. Uh, let's see. I, I know that the, the United States uses more opioids than many other countries around the world. Right. What I mean, probably due to the fact that we live in a society of not single payer medicine and we allow these drug companies to just roll up and tell our doctors what they should and shouldn't prescribe. And doctors are like, OK, well, it also allows for a lot of personal choice as well. Uh, you know, individuals who are waltzing in, I mean, they they know of the effectiveness of opioids. So if they're experiencing pain and above all, they want to avoid that, then they're probably going to go with whatever the strongest thing is, just cause. Right. Like I want the air quotes best thing yeah, to treat and, my pain. Well, I mean, although it has some real, real nasty side effects, uh, I think that, that opioids are the best thing to treat your pain with. I mean, they're certainly the strongest. They are the strongest when you don't consider things like tolerance addictions and yeah. addiction it's, right? I mean, it's the it's the addiction that that gets you right like it, it's the fact that right. you once you once you pop you just can't stop you just gotta keep on going and it becomes a part of your life mm -hmm. uh let's see uh it, actually we have uh, opioid use disorder as being listed in the dsm-5 something i found mm -hmm. uh particularly interesting there are 11 criteria points in order to be able to diagnose someone with opioid use disorder. And if two or okay. more of the 11 criteria are present, you can make the diagnosis. Uh, now, there is, uh, there, there's a little bit of a, an extra portion here. Uh, if a person is appropriately, being the key word, taking opioids for a medical condition, issues of tolerance mm -hmm. and withdrawal do not apply. Why is that? I'm not entirely sure, but because they say so that that appropriately, <laughs> it will. It's not, it's not clearly defined, and I think it goes back to our initial problem that 
uh, we we're putting too much authority into these doctors and pharmaceutical companies' hands. Like we we trust them to have our best interests in mind. Right. In fact, you know, we're relying on them way too heavily. We're poorly educated in this field, mm-hmm. uh, and we are messing with our biology in ways that you know we probably shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, but then again, you know that pain is a pretty uh, a pretty persuasive thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure you've been in pain. I've been in pain. A lot of our listeners have been prior. And, and if you are in enough of it, you'll do just about anything to get out of it. It's true. It's a very serious thing. It, do you, do you think, uh, can you think of any ways that we could fix this problem? Um, well, we can start by not prescribing so many opioids. Uh, I think, I think opioids in general should be kept uh, away from the public except for in very dire situations and people in their later years in life um i don't i don't think just as a rule just as a rule yeah like i just uh because the whole reason why we're here in the first place is the over prescription and mm-hmm. uh, but the, the issue is is that the the medical field as of now is in a sticky situation because you have all these people that are hooked on opioids and if they were to just stop prescribing altogether, you would have a lot of people just going to the streets, getting unsafe yep. opioids that may be laced yep. with deadly substances like fentanyl and dying that way. So it's kind of like they can't cold turkey the public at this point. But uh-huh. uh, people that haven't already been introduced to the opioids, I definitely think healthcare providers should think twice about starting them on them and prescribing them to them. Sure. And if the, the epidemic isn't enough, like just the general knowledge of how addictive or how how much of a negative impact they could make on those individuals' lives should be enough to convince them uh, that the uh, the monetary benefit uh, from doing so is just not worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I would hope. Then again, you know, relying on these these people's uh, goodwill, or yeah. good nature. Do the right thing, doctors. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and I and I hope within the next, you know, five to ten years, there's some major class action lawsuit against these opioid producing um, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies that we, yep. due to their uh, their negligence, much in the same way we saw against the tobacco industry, because I feel like <laughs> with where we are now in America, it, it would it would only be just. To, for that to happen if that doesn't happen it, yeah it'd just be like letting them get away with it just uh you know a couple of decades ago a pack of cigarettes was actually cheaper than a bag of heroin <laughs> yeah <laughs> damn it <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah so is it okay if we segue to silver linings that sounds good so yeah uh opioid i, I don't really have one for the epidemic i think the epidemic has Epidemics as they are, are are pretty bad. In their nature, bad. Yeah, unless you want to get to the like, eh, well, we're uh, we're reducing our population size, which yeah. allows more stuff for people who are left. <laughs> Damn it. It's rough. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at uh, opioids and their prevalence today, they are still one of the cheapest ways at providing us with ridiculously potent uh, pain reduction. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, in, in terms of, you know, going back to what we were just talking about, fixing the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. uh, having uh, a, a cheaper stand-in for opioids, you know, coming up with some type of technological advancement that allows us to synthesize other chemicals that are less addictive, but also uh, effective at reducing pain. I don't know, maybe, maybe we need some Soma. You familiar with Soma? No idea what Soma is. Well, uh, for those of you who are Aldous Huxley's fans or have read Brave New World, Soma is that uh, is the chemical that uh, all of the individuals within this uh, utopian society take on a daily basis in order to rid themselves of any type of pain, discomfort, uh, boredom, what have you. Sounds like antidepressants. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's kind of how it's written. Uh, I actually had this quote here. I was like, I don't, I can't find any other way to work it in. So I'm just going to read it. Now. Fucking shoehorn it right in there. <laughs> it's great. Uh, is so this is this is directly from uh, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So there is always soma, delicious soma, half a gram for half holiday, a gram for a weekend, two grams for a trip to the gorgeous east, 
and three for a dark eternity on the moon. Huh. It's pretty nice. Pretty good stuff. Literal dark eternity on the moon, or that's that's just where you go when you take that much. Uh, I don't. I'm not exactly sure there. That, that might be a double entendre kind of thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, uh, can you think of any other silver linings? Due to this uh, epidemic, uh, as I stated earlier, doctors have had to uh, increase their uh, connection to the uh, pharmacies to see what kind of drugs have been prescribed to their patients. So I guess there's more oversight, which is good, which theoretically would lead to uh, less instances of doctors accidentally prescribing drugs that in combination would have a negative effect on their patients, question mark, right? If you... Question mark? (laughs) I think that's how that would work, right? Like if you have a better idea of... Uh, what? And then, you know, maybe the, those policies of the better connected computer systems wouldn't be in place if it wasn't for this epidemic, maybe? Yeah, yeah. You, you got to have a problem to fix before you can fix it, right? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yep. I, That's tough. I don't know. Uh, well, I, I hope that uh, that this, uh, you know, public health emergency is, uh, you know, we're making some headway towards fixing it pretty soon. I mean, hey, if the if the Dontron's behind it, you know, chances are we're, we're <laughs> right to fixing it. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's all you need. Yo, that's right. Um, well, well, Jimmy, um, besides the the ep- the opioid epidemic, is there anything making you sad? Um, you know what? Not too specifically. Just uh, you know, uh, I've been feeling a little bummy this week. It's been a little cloudy yeah. outside. I don't know if that has something to do with it. But I don't know why, but, you know, this week has just been a little little bit of a bummy week. And no particular reason. Life's going good. But, you know, as Mr. Rogers said, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Yep. That's right. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. It's been a particularly dreary day, at least for the past couple of days. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Like we're we're slowly going into autumn, mm-hmm. and uh, as the season change, you know, just to be aware of the fact that you could be feeling a little less than perky. Yeah, and that's totally fine. Seasonal affective disorder is a thing, so it's okay to yep, yep. be sad. And it is. It totally just, is. Just, okay. just gotta remember that the sadness, much like the opioid crisis, won't last forever. We hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely all right uh well uh where can they find us jimmy all right so if you have any comments questions concerns anything (laughs) you'd like to tell us you can email us at cynic empowerment at gmail.com we would love Mm -hmm. to hear from you there if you do email us you may be subjected to being part of a listener response episode later down the road unless you put in there saying no they're not including me in that case, we won't include you. Um, we you can also find us on Facebook, where mm-hmm. we let y'all know whenever any of our episodes release. That way, you can listen mm-hmm. to them. And if you want to listen to us, you can listen to us on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. So, yes. yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, everybody. Uh is there anything else that we need to, to give everybody a heads up about? You need to give everybody a heads up about the... No, I got nothing. All right, cool. Well, until next time, everybody, uh, keep your head up, and we'll catch you next time. Yeah, catch you next time, everybody. Lay off the opioids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>